Hi and welcome to the Jewelry Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about fine jewelry in a simple way and break away from the norms and customs that have shaped an industry that otherwise is very tainted by rules and traditions. I am so happy that so many of you liked the previous episode on how to pick the right gemstone, where we deep dove into the hardness of a stone. This is where I will admit that I was a bit nervous about how the episode was going to be received and that you might find it too nerdy. But especially in the Swedish version of this podcast, this was the episode we got the most positive feedback from you guys on. One girl on Instagram wrote, This is proof that I can remember things as long as they are interesting enough. And another one commented, You get so inspired to learn more about jewelry, precious metals and gemstones. So of course we have to continue down this track. Your comments motivate me to continue doing this podcast and keep trying to educate you who listen in what is hopefully a simple and pedagogical manner. But why do I love to teach? Because I have found that the more you know about a topic, the more interesting it becomes. It's that simple. And some of you seem to already have realized how true this is. And also, the more you know about gemstones, the better decisions you will be able to make when you are buying your own jewelry. So it's a win-win. You are having fun, and I am having fun recording this. One thing we have noticed is that fine jewelry is an interest or a hobby that many have, but they keep it a bit secret and don't really dare to be open about their passion. A girl slid into our DMs on Instagram. Hi, I just want to thank you for the jewelry podcast. I love fine jewelry and spend a lot of time thinking about the kind of questions you bring up in the podcast and marvel that evidently there are many others out there that do too. Others wrestling with thoughts like, can you buy fine jewelry for yourself? What is your style? And so on. Every time I listen, you have my fullest attention and I am so looking forward to the episodes with guests. It is a pleasure to be heard and encouraged to live out your passion for fine jewelry and sparkle and not feel gaudy or superficial because you are interested in pretty things that sparkle. So thank you. And messages like this are really music to my ears, because honestly, when I started the podcast, I didn't know if anybody would listen. The fact is that when I was about to write a booklet about precious stones to help guide our customers to pick between the sparkle, I couldn't find a single book in Swedish to use as a source. As you know, Mumbai Stockholm is a Swedish brand, and this jeweler podcast is actually the little sister of the Swedish version Smykkespodden. Anyway, I couldn't quite believe it, so I went to two different brick-and-mortar stores. One of them was the Swedish equivalent of Barnes & Noble. In the first one, I was met with a blank stare and the single-syllable answer, no. In the other, the cashier actually called out to his colleague, Hey, didn't we have a book about gemstones a while ago? Yeah, we did, but it was for kids, she answered. And that was that. And I was actually in shock that there aren't any books, magazines, TV programs, etc. on the subject typically means that no one is interested, so that there isn't any demand. Despite all of these indicators, more and more of you are listening every week. I almost have to pinch myself to believe it. So my question to you is actually, why are so few people interested in gemstones? What do you think? Are you interested in gemstones? Or have you become now? So please slide into my DMs on Instagram. I am dying to hear your thoughts. Anyway, sorry for getting sidetracked. The story ended with me buying some English books online and writing that booklet after all, despite the universe seemingly telling me I shouldn't. But I have to say that 
even going international in my search, I found the available selection to be pretty boring. The books on the topic are more about mineral rocks and geology rather than pretty gem quality stones for jewelry. I still miss that guidebook about what to think about when you are buying jewelry for yourself. But on the other hand, if that existed, then this podcast probably wouldn't. So my goal is that this podcast will be a perfect substitute for that book I looked for. The thing about gemstones is that much of the knowledge and facts about the precious stones used in jewelry is based on traditions and craftsmanship and is passed down from gemstone dealers and stone setters to the next generation. And that is part of the charm, that the subject is still veiled in a bit of mystery, but it definitely doesn't make it easier when you are trying to make good informed decisions about which stones to buy. So if you have any questions about gemstones, write to me on Instagram, either to me, the jewelry designer, or directly to the podcast, the jewelry podcast. And of course, I will keep your questions anonymous. And this is where it gets really exciting because we have already received some questions from you guys. I thought I'd answer one of them at the end of the podcast, and it is a question about gold. So bear with me all the way to the end, and you'll hear both the question and my answer. But first, we need to talk about something else. Something that is very good to keep in mind now that you know about Mo and his scale of hardness that is your best friend when choosing between the different gemstones that we talked about last time. Hardness indicates how easily your gemstone will be scratched by other materials. And it's an important factor that indicates how long your stone will remain beautiful and sparkling. All the tiny micro scratches your jeweler pieces get when you wear them and do not get as wrong jewelry is meant to be worn. That is what ultimately makes them look a bit dull and lackluster. And perhaps the most important lesson we learned in episode 4 was that stones with a hardness of 7.5 or above are the adventure-proof ones, sort of. That is most likely stay pretty until you decide to pass them on to your grandchildren. And I have posted the hardness scale on our Instagram if you want to check it out, Jeweler Podcast. And then you start to wonder, are there other industries that make a fuss about the hardness of different materials? Absolutely. The watch industry, for example. Do you know what the main difference is between a high-end expensive Omega and a cheaper watch? The glass covering the watch face. The glass on the Omega is actually a sapphire glass, a kind of crystal, whereas the cheaper watch only has a regular glass, often a type of plastic like acrylic. A regular glass, and the glass used in normal watches, has a hardness of between 3 and 5 on most scale of hardness. The cheaper watch will thus start to get scratches the minute you put it on because of good old regular dust. And after a while, you won't see the dials quite so clearly anymore. But the sapphire glass on the Omega, and there are of course other brands too, (laughs) which actually isn't real sapphire, but a synthetic sapphire which has the same chemical structure and properties as the real deal, has a hardness of 9. Harder than almost all other materials, with diamonds being one of few exceptions. This means that you can wear the Omega every day on all your adventures and it will remain unscratched. And my friend I told you about with the yellow insect ring a few episodes ago actually does wear her Omega every day. But she also admits that just because the glass is bulletproof doesn't mean the rest of the watches. So perhaps take it off before going rock climbing or entering an MMA fight. And this is just one example of how other industries also take the hardness of materials and most scale into consideration. But is hardness the single factor deciding the durability of a precious stone? No, 
not quite. By looking at the hardness scale when picking your stone, you have gotten far, but there are a few exceptions that you should be aware of because a gemstone can actually be very hard but still chip relatively easily. And how easy it chips depends on how brittle it is. Gemologists use the term cleavage, which is defined as the tendency of crystalline materials to split along definite crystallographic structural lanes. Sorry, difficult words. Sorry for extremely nerdy lingo, but I will try to explain. So we have to start with what actually is the difference between a stone getting scratched and chipping. So it often has to do with hardness. Usually harder stones don't chip as easily as softer stones. The softest also scratch more easily. For example, if you fall on your bike, ouch, and hit your ring on the asphalt, double ouch, the likelihood of the stone surviving without both scratches and chipping increases the harder the stone is, but not always. And to understand these exceptions, we have to understand what hardness is. Well, what makes a material hard is how tightly bound its atoms are. A stone is harder to scratch if its atoms are bound tightly, which is the case with, for example, diamonds. Diamonds have the most tightly bound atoms in the world. It's like you can't break them apart how hard you try, like a teenager and their smartphone, and thus you can't scratch it. But the pattern in which the atoms are connected determines the stone's cleavage. And there are some gemstones that have so-called perfect cleavage, which means that if they get a hit from exactly the right angle, they can actually split in two. That is why you say that a hammer can scratch a diamond, but it can break it in a thousand pieces. But to succeed, you have to hit it at exactly the right angle. But what is the right or perhaps wrong, if you like your diamond, angle? Well... In stones that have perfect cleavage, the atoms are arranged in perfect planes, rather than being all jumbled up, perfectly stacked on top of each other. And the atoms are bound more tightly within the planes than between the planes. So you might have guessed it. It is when you manage to hit exactly between planes that they can break apart from each other and the stone splits in two. And that is not the same as when one atom breaks from another, like when you are trying to scratch a stone. And this doesn't mean you have to walk around worrying about your diamond splitting in two just because you accidentally bump into something. The greatest risk of a stone breaking like this actually occurs before it is fixed in a piece of jewelry. For example, as a stone is being set, if the stone setter presses the prongs a little bit too hard at the wrong angle. And this happens even to the best of them. And this is why we don't recommend removing an old stone from an old setting, for example, like from a piece you inherited or that you bought at auction, because very often the stone is chipped under the prongs and you won't be able to reset it again without it breaking. So if you want to keep a gemstone, let it remain in the piece of jewelry it's set in. If you don't like the look of it, it's better to just sell the entire piece and invest in a new piece that you love. But the stone you have to be a bit cautious about is topaz, a gemstone that is softer than a diamond. The topaz would be easier for you to break rather than, for example, a tourmaline or morganite, which is lower on the hardness scale. If you were to, say, drop it from a staircase onto a stone floor. And the main difference is that in the case of the topaz, if you are unlucky, one tenth could break off and the break would be totally clean compared to the tourmaline where you probably just would have a small uneven chip on the stone. And this is because of the stone's different atomic structures. And what about small chips then? 
are all gemstones equally likely to get chipped? It sort of depends on the hardness, as in how tightly the atoms are bound, but that they break or cleave so that a larger piece breaks off with impact at the right or wrong, depending on how you see it, angle, like in the case of a topaz or diamond, that depends on the cleavage and how brittle the stones are. And there is actually one more factor that can make hard stones brittle, because that is what it's called. A stone that easily breaks is called a brittle stone, as in a stone that ranks very highly on most scale of hardness can still be brittle. One such stone is emerald, but it is not for the same reason as a topaz. Rather, it is because emeralds have so many inclusions. You who have looked into buying a larger diamond, or just browsed the internet daydreaming about getting a rock so big people around you have to wear sunglasses, have probably noticed that inclusion is an important factor in deciding how pretty and expensive a diamond is. Ideally, you want a stone that is as clear as possible with few or no inclusions. And they do exist. But the emerald is a gemstone that in itself has many inclusions. And it makes it very brittle. That is why you very rarely recommend an emerald, other than a crystal clear emerald, which is very rare, as an engagement ring, or for any ring you plan on wearing every day that you want to last for a long time. Because even though it is hard, it is brittle. And why? Well, emeralds are formed during very chaotic circumstances, aren't we all, by the way? And it is high pressure from every direction. So the crystals aren't allowed to form in peace, which means that it develops a lot of internal inclusions and cracks. And a chain is, as you know, never stronger than its weakest link. And if there is an internal crack in the emerald, there is a high risk that it will break apart there. The more cracks and inclusions there are, the more sensitive the stone. A lot of people are enchanted by the mystery surrounding emeralds. And I totally get it. And a clean emerald without any inclusions and cracks is just as expensive as, as it is rare. But if you want an emerald ring that will last for a long time, you need to find that perfect, practically clear stone because only then will it truly last. Another fun fact about the emerald is that it comes from the same gem clan as aquamarine, morganite and heliodore. They all belong to the beryl rock family. But are morganites and heliodores as brittle? No. They get to grow up in a lot more calm environment and don't have the same amount of inclusions. It is a lot easier to find clear aquamarines than it is to find a clear emerald. The emerald has this problem just because of the different circumstances under which it forms and the lack of peace and quiet. But if you find a clear emerald, it is just as durable as, for example, an aquamarine. And I think it is this air of mystery surrounding emeralds that cause many to regard it as the most exclusive gemstone. There are some jeweler brands, actually, that work exclusively with diamonds and emeralds because they are so luxurious. There are a few other stones that are like emeralds, naturally having many inclusions. For example, in rutile quartz, there can form small hairline cracks in the mineral. This can also happen in two-colored stones, like watermelon tourmaline. And creating a two-colored stone requires the chemical environment in the rock to change during the formation process. And that change causes a bit of chaos and pressure differences, which often create small, small cracks in the stones. And as you know, that is when impact from the wrong direction can cause the stone to crack. But how does this help you pick your gemstone? 
Unfortunately, no scientist or gemologist have sat down and given the gemstones a combined score based on the hardness ranking according to Mo and how brittle they are to create the ultimate list. This is the perfect gemstone for you. And believe me, I have looked for that list. So how should you tackle this delicate problem? Well, my advice to you is to follow Mo's scale because it tells you a lot about how easily a stone will scratch and how well it will handle potential impact and external force without breaking or getting chipped. A soft stone with a hardness of 7 or below, for example amethyst, citrine, moonstone, opal, pearl and coral, is more likely to chip than a hard stone and scratches easier and is brittle. But the exceptions amongst the hard stones are, like we have discussed, emerald and topaz. Because of their hardness ranking of 8, they don't scratch very easily, but they do chip easily and can break from hard impact because they are brittle. Compared to rubies and sapphires, for example, you might remember, by the way, that they are actually the same stone. They are both hard and tough. I hope you found this episode exciting and that you are more excited than ever to deep dive into the world of gemstones and fine jewelry. I thought we'd end this podcast by answering a question from a listener, and it is about gold. Tess wrote to us, Hi, I found the podcast after finding your web shop and all the amazing jewelry, but I have a question for the podcast. You often see brands in a cheaper price range having 14k gold. What is the difference between 18 karat and 14 karat gold? Okay, so this is really interesting. And first we have to make sure we don't get mixed up between the carat of a gemstone spelt with a C, and the carat of gold, with a K. Because carat with K is not a measure of weight, but rather a measure of purity or the ratio of gold in your jewelry. And the carat of a gemstone is a weight where 0.2 grams is one carat. But a gold carat, spelt with K, is 1 24th, where 24 of 24 parts is 100% pure gold. This means that a piece of 24 karat gold jewelry is 100% real gold. But gold is a very soft metal, only 2.5 on most scale, and 24 karat is usually thought to be too soft to be used in jewelry since it scratches or deforms easily. Therefore, you mix the gold up with other metals to increase its resilience. So an 18 karat piece is 18 24ths or 75%. Pure gold. The remaining 25% is an alloy of other metals like silver and yellow gold, copper, rose gold, or palladium white gold. 14 carat contains 14 24ths, which is 58.3% pure gold, and the rest other metals. 9 carat gold is 9 24ths, so actually only 37.5% pure gold, and the majority is other metals, and so on. In Sweden, we don't allow anything less than 9 carat, 37.5% pure gold, that is, to be sold or marketed as gold. In the US, this threshold is 10 carat. The lower the ratio of pure gold in a piece of jewelry, the cheaper it generally is. And you can look for markings like 18k or 750, as in 75%, to see if your jewelry is 18 carat. Then you should see a, a stamp Again, 18K stamp or 750 stamp. And 14K is marked with either 14K or 585. I hope this answered your question, Tess. Thank you so much for listening today. 
This is the podcast where we talk about fine jewelry in a simple way. And if this episode sparks some thoughts or questions, do slide into our DMs, either Jeweler Podcast or The Jewelry Designer, which is my personal account. And if you like the podcast, remember that a comment or rating is worth its weight in gold, or shall we say diamonds. And don't forget to ask questions. I will do my best to answer them in the podcast. And never forget, you deserve fine jewelry. Mm-hmm.